You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. I'm calling my son up to the stage. See if I get through this. Last week we've had some people going back to college or going to college. Tanner, I don't see the Doberns this morning, but Tanner left this last week or a week ago. Do you want to tell them what your plans are? No, I. I like you. I, I like doing it like this. this is your last mission. Yeah, I can't do this with everybody. Okay. Um, on Wednesday, I will be leaving for Emmaus Bible College in Dubuque to go study there. Okay. Do you want me to? You want to keep talking? You want no, to preach? No, I'm good. Okay. No. All right. Stay here. So, George, uh, just one note. You pro- some of you maybe know this, but I just wanted to thank George. I know he's not leaving. He'll be back, and we'll see him again, Lord willing, all those things. But George is behind a lot of what design work we have around here. I don't know if you know this, your bulletin. He's done a, just a, a redo of our, even our logo just to kind of refresh it in the past years here. We've done that. He's done flyers for my Sunday school. He's kind of my call to, hey, I need a design, and he'll do it. And then sometimes when he doesn't have time, I'll do it, and it'll be inferior, but it's, it's okay, and it works. Um, played bass for us. Uh, helped with the podcast, the podcast that comes out every week. George is behind doing that, as well as most of our website is uh, designed by him. So I just wanted to thank you for that, for your free volunteer hours, and we will miss you here. So... Thanks, George. Okay, that went better than I thought. All right, let's go to the sermon. Let's go to the Word. Uh, Romans 5. We're at the end of the chapter. Romans 5, let's go to God's Word. We're going to be really in 18 and 20, 18 through 21, but... We'll read 12 through 21 again. On your way there, we had some great pictures from last week, but one picture. I don't get from this from Kayla a lot. I don't know if I've ever gotten a picture from Kayla, maybe once or twice, but this one was great. So if there's a picture of Wisconsin cheese, it should be on the screen, though. But uh, we talked about the comparison. There's generic cheese, there's cheese, and then there's Wisconsin cheese. And I appreciate that, Kayla. So thanks for drawing that. The comparison really was... There's Adam's trespass and sin, and then there's grace and the free gift in Christ. There is no comparison. Paul is comparing those and elevating the grace of Christ. And so we're going to do that once again as we close out this chapter 5 of Romans. Um, I will be here next week, but Dick Persons is going to be preaching. We've got things going on during the week, so he's going to be preaching in my place. Um, And then we'll come back to chapter 6, maybe the next week, but probably in the... the, uh, One more week, we might do uh, something different there. So anyway, you're hearing God's word. Let's start at verse 12 of chapter 5 of Romans. Let's listen to God's word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. 
For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment, following one trespass, brought condemnation, but the free gift, following many trespasses, brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you that we can come to your word right now and we can gather freely in this place to gather as your body, your divinely called body, all the different parts and hands and feet of it. Lord, we thank you for the work of George here amidst the the corporate gathering and the corporate body. And we just pray that you would bless his future and Tanner as he's away as well and others that are heading back to college. May you guide them in your word. And so now, Lord, as we think on it, as we study, as I preach, Lord, would you use this time by your Spirit to convict our hearts and to bring us into greater worship of what we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, you are the one we exalt and we want to worship you and we pray that as we think on these things and we think on sin and death and we think on grace and life, that our hearts are led to worship you alone all the more. I pray this in your name. Amen. What is it that makes a mirror so helpful? A mirror. You've gone to a mirror. I'm, I'm thinking most of you have even found yourself in front of a mirror this morning. Or maybe some of your wives are hoping you would have found your place in front of a mirror. Mirrors do something for us. They show us ourselves. And we look at him and we see something, maybe something's out of place, maybe a button's not quite right, or we come and we look in a mirror and we're adjusting our hair, or somebody politely says, hey, go, go smile in the mirror, go check it out. And so you go to the mirror and there's that, that piece of lettuce from supper, you know, whatever. It's just, I know that's going to, but that's what mirrors do. They show us something of ourselves. And they show back on us. In our passage today, We're going to see that God's Word, specifically the law of God, is this mirror to our souls. So when we look into the Word of God, we we see sin for what it really is. And what it really is, is a refusal to obey God. And the commands of God just simply increase our sin. And pile upon pile, we're burdened with the weight of sin, and so we should be. We look in this mirror and we go, my sin's are many. We are sinners. God is right. But though those sins be many, God's grace here is abounding all the more. 
and it's abounding in Christ. So we're going to look again one last time into chapter 5 in light of sin's increase and then see this graciousness of God in Jesus Christ, the righteous one and what he has done for sinners like us. In each of these three sections, three, at least in the ESV, I've got three paragraphs. I think each one, the, the first verse of them kind of summarizes what follows. So verse 12, you've got just as sin um, came into the world through one man. That's kind of a, a heading, if you will. Then verse 15 starts, at least in the ESV, another paragraph. So the free gift is not like the trespass, and we looked at that. And now verse 18 sets the tone as well. Let me read it again. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. In some ways, that chart that we made last week, the side-by-side, the trespass of Adam, the free gift in Christ, we could just continue it on as Paul continues to make these contrasts back and forth. But let's look at this comparison in verse 18. And the first line here is nothing we've not seen before, really, this trespass leading to condemnation. Paul continues to build on this argument, the, the, the one man, the Adam, and, and then the one man, Jesus Christ. One trespass, that is Adam's, led to this condemnation for all men. And again, the effects of Adam's one sin bring guilt, imputed guilt to all men, men and women, all men, and so all are condemned. But then that bad news, that, that condemnation is set up in contrast to the good news, the good news of the other man, Jesus Christ. And the ESV refers to this as, as this one act of righteousness. So one act of righteousness leads to justification of life. In the NASB, I think you've got it, the NIV, ESV, this, this calls it this, this one act of righteousness. And the whole verse, actually, and I know maybe you see some some verbals uh, in, in the text, but there's really no verb in the whole, in the Greek text, there's no verbs. It's just kind of, there's, you know, words that have no verbal to them, and so it's a little bit hard to translate. I'm not, I'm not sure here if this one act, if Paul is referring here in this one act to maybe Christ on the cross, like that act of righteousness, or I, I would go with, in, in lieu of verse 19, we'll get there, if Paul doesn't mean just the entirety of Christ's righteous life, his righteousness. So, that could be debated. What's at issue here, at least maybe, for us as we read verse 18 is the last part of it, the last clause. And it may bring up a, just a looming question as we read through it. Will, the question is really, will, will all men be saved? I mean, what, whatever the one act of righteousness refers to, we, we know it refers to Christ. And so the implication is justification and life or justification of life for all men. And so if we say in Adam all men are condemned, and then must we say that because of Christ, then all men will be saved, like all of humanity, the entirety of humanity. So the argument is made here that to follow the logic, well, all men, every man, will be saved, will be justified, will be reconciled to God. It's the theology of universalism. Maybe you've heard of this before, universalism. In essence, and there's probably different sides and ways and ways people think of universalism, but in essence, it's the belief that all humanity, every person, whether saved now 
or they're going to die and face God's judgment, all in the end will be saved. Nobody really goes to hell forever. Listen to a portion. Here's what the Unitarian Universalist, you can't get more unified than that, the Unitarian Universal, and I'm saying this in quotes, church. I don't think they are a church, but here's what they believe on this. They say this, now, amongst other things. One, we believe that love is more important than doctrine. That has some problems. Doctrine, love is important, and so is doctrine. What's funny is when they say we believe that love is more important than doctrine, they just made doctrine important, and that what they, what they believe. But anyway, but they also say, we believe that God's mercy will reconcile all unto itself. They don't even call unto himself. It's unto itself in the end. We believe that God's mercy will reconcile all unto itself in the end. That's the Unitarian Universal. You can look them up. But it's not just a belief among the Unitarian Universalists. Mike McClyman, he's written I've not read it. I just saw it. A thirteen hundred over thirteen hundred pages on the history of universalism and chronicling this through history. So this is not just a boy. That's kind of a, a small group out there. It's it's big. Thirteen hundred pages worth worth of of history. And the, the the book he is titled, if you want to want to read it in a weekend, is called The Devil's Redemption. So if you want to look that up, you can read about this history, or if you're interested in this and, and want to explore that more. Mike McClymond's book, The Devil's Redemption. And the appeal to thinking, all will be saved, maybe it comes from thinking, well, how cruel it must make God, right, to punish people forever in sin, eternally? I mean, really? Is, is hell forever? Yet if there is to be universalism, true universalism, I think, is taught by Paul, what? That all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. All men are dead in sin and thus on the path to eternal torment. So true Christianity teaches universalism, universalism in sin against the backdrop of a holy God. All right, that said, though, we've still got to wrestle with Paul's work, his words here in verse 18 and even into 19. So if we want to say, if we want to say all sin and are dead in Adam, which is what the text says, then is it not equally true that all are alive and righteous in Christ? Now, the simple answer is yes, but the question then becomes, are all in Christ? I think biblically, in the context of Romans, the answer is no. Theologian Louis Burkhoff, he writes this. He says, the context, you ever hear, we, hear, we say this a lot here, context is king. The context clearly shows that the all or all men of Romans 5.18, and then he brings up 1 Corinthians 15.22, if you want to write this in, says there, Paul says there, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. As in Adam all die. Christ, all shall be made alive. It says the context clearly shows that the all or the all men includes only those who are in Christ as contrasted with all who are in Adam. So is Paul here, if we, if we take the universalist route, you, you know, all of a sudden he spent chapter after chapter as we've gone through it 
showcasing, hammering down on what? The wrath and judgment of sin due to all. All have sinned. We're all accountable. And he gets to this verse and he says, you know what? All that, just never mind. I actually, actually in the end, everybody is going to be saved. They're all okay. No, every, every human is born in Adam. Not everyone is born again in Christ. Jesus himself makes the distinction of what? Sheep and the goats. Or Paul, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, says, says of those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It's one of the most clearest places, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. One commentator I've referred to often, Leon Morris, or at least brought him up here and there. He says most succinctly, he doesn't even really take time in his commentary on this. He just says, for all men, of course, means for all those in Christ. And then I think he, he moves on. So I think the context, and again, context helps us to show that universalism in our sin, yes, in all saved in the end, all reconciled, mercy, God's mercy to all, No. Well, verse 19 then, as we go on, makes another comparison and in a way is elaborating then on verse uh, 18. Look at verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. In verse 18, Adam's trespass leads to condemnation for all. Verse 19, Adam's disobedience made all to be sinners or disobedient themselves. The Greek word here for, for this, this disobedience is actually, it's got the idea of not hearing. The word for hearing is actually in the word. So when God called out to his people that he brought out from Egypt, he called to them to obey his, his voice you know what they heard? Obey what you hear. So to hear and to listen is, biblically speaking, means to obey. It's kind of the, it's interchangeable. So to hear, to listen, for Israel to listen to God is for Israel to obey God. For man to listen to God is to obey God. One lexicon sees disobedience here even more than just merely not listening. It's not just closing our ears. They actually call it refusing to obey. Think of God's voice with Adam. He had told Adam, eat whatever tree you want, but not this one. And Adam refused to obey. And through that disobedience, then the many were made sinners. But then the second part of verse 19, you've got, that's the first part, the comma, then so by the other one man. It's the glorious news that one came who did perfectly hear and obey Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Dead in our sin, we could never do that. We could never obey perfectly. No matter what environment we're raised in or, or what the condition of our, our place is, we cannot, we are born in sin. But of the Son, the Father says this. Remember Matthew three seventeen, said, Of the Son, I am, God says, I am well pleased. Jesus never, he was tempted he never gave in to the temptation. 2 Corinthians 5 says, verse 21, 
says, for our sake He made Him, God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ was, Christ is, perfectly what Adam had not been. Christ is righteous through and through. Now again, theologically, Christ's obedience has been described in two ways. You can write them down. His, his obedience thought of as his active obedience and his passive obedience. Active and passive. Let's just think about those as we think about by this one man's obedience, these two aspects of Christ's obedience, active and passive. John Murray, and this I'm finding via Justin Taylor, he, he's helpful here to think in these terms, this active obedience and the passive obedience of Christ, in terms of the twofold demand of the law. Think of the twofold demand of the law in that Christ did two things. One, he took care of the guilt of sin. That's passive obedience. And then he perfectly fulfilled the demands of righteousness, his active obedience. So, actively. Actively, Jesus fulfills the entirety of all the commands of God. Everything he fulfills. He was, he is perfect in every way. Never not hearing, never disobeying. Father, your will be done. Not my will, but yours be done. All the way, through and through. Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophet, prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He actively, righteously obeys perfectly. We can never do that. That's what Christ does. But then passively. So that's, that's the law in the command. Then what's the demand of the law for those that have broken the law? The demand of the law that way, negatively, is death. Punishment. And so that's what it demands for sin. And here, too, Christ obeys. And where does he go? To the cross in place of that propitiation, that satisfying of God's wrath in our place on the cross. And so it is through Christ, by faith in him, we are reckoned not guilty and righteous before God. Uh, Philippians 2, verse 8 says this. This is helpful. And being found in human form, this is what Christ did. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. So there's humility from, from the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, to the cross, obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Isaiah 53 shows this as well. You can look up the whole chapter of Isaiah 53. Verse 6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The law's negative demand, the punishment for sin placed on Christ. And so we are made righteous in him. He has bore our sin. Isaiah 53, I mentioned that, verses 11 through 12, I think sums it up well as we see this, all this fulfillment of Isaiah 53 in Christ. So verses 11 and 12 say, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Active, passive, obedience all the way. Verse 12 says, Therefore, I, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes 
intercession for the transgressors. Our righteousness is in Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection, His eternal intercession. Then verse 20, Paul starts with the law and just kind of crescendos and builds to the end of the chapter with a view then to this, again, this abounding grace in Christ. Look at verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, before we ask here, because a question, you know, just how did the law increase sin? It's worth, worth noting the law, again, the place of the law among the Jews. And, and by law, think of that law of Moses, and we might refer to it the Ten Commandments, but it's the greater, the law of God. My study Bible makes this helpful cultural note here, and it's, and it's worth just repeating to you. Think of this. The, they say the typical Jewish view in Paul's day was that God gave the law to counteract the sinful human impulse. In Judaism, there was the proverb, the more Torah, the more law, the more Torah, the more life. And Doug Moo points this out about the law. He says the law was considered God's special gift to Israel, often being viewed as in itself virtually guaranteeing Israel's salvation. So to the Jew... The law meant life, even salvation, which makes what Paul's saying here so opposite, so contrary in saying that, no, it actually increased the trespass. How did it do this? How did the law increase the trespass? I think it's that the law, we could say it amplified sin. Look in the context just I don't think this is the only places where law is mentioned, but in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Just we're going to go back and we're going to come back to 5 here. Just a little context, just so you see it in your scriptures. Think about the law, what Paul has just said. The law came in to increase the trespass. Here's what Paul says, at least in 3, 19 and 20. He says, now, that we, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Well, there goes the salvation of it, that aspect. But he says, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Something the law is doing is giving that knowledge of sin. Fast forward to chapter 4, verse 15. 4, verse 15 says this, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. And then fast forward to chapter 5 and even verse 13. Verse 13, where Paul has said this, he said, for sin was indeed, or sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law I think there's an implication that as the law comes, so sin is counted all the more. Death was before the law, but then there's this law, and then sin is counted there. Now, there's more than one use of the law. So what Paul's saying here is not the only use of the law. There's, it can govern a people. God gave it to govern the people of Israel, to govern society in general. Laws are good. We're still somewhat obeying laws. 
And even God's law is a, can be a rule and a guide, even to those who are in Christ. It's not like we take the first half of our Bible and throw it out. It's what we follow, but we see it all fulfilled in Christ, and then we live in Christ's likeness. Like the one who fulfilled all law, we live like Him. The law helps us in that. But here, Paul's aiming at the use of this law in this amplification of the trespass. It reveals the problem of sin before a holy God. And I think for my study, there's at least, there could be more, maybe at least two aspects of this law that, that's increasing the trespass. How does it do this when the law comes? Again, ESV Study Bible pointing out that without the law, people sinned against their conscience. God's written that law on the heart. So people knew of that sin. But now, now having the law or knowing the law, they now in an increased way, I think you could say, they willfully disobey what they know is wrong. You ever think like me sometimes? You just kind of, all the laws of the state, you know, there, there's so many laws. Out, when I used to fly airplanes, it just was like every year there's just new, whatever industry you're in, it just seems like there's more regulation. And sometimes you kind of just, I, I don't want to read more books because if I read, then, then I know and I'm accountable for that. Here's the law bringing this. Now we know. So there's conscience in the heart, law in the heart, and then there's a knowing. It's clear in the Word. And yet, now, even there, there's a rebelling anyway. Now it's written down. We see it right here. And we go, no, no, love the Lord your God. No, only worship Him tomorrow. And we go worship another God, so on and so forth. The trespass increases. Secondly, the law, like, we, like I said at the beginning, is like a mirror that, that we might understand just how bad off our plight is, our problem is. Leon Morris, again, he writes that the law was concerned with showing sin for what it is, and it certainly showed magnificently that there was much sin. He goes on to say it, it, it magnified the sin, like a magnifying glass. It magnifies the sin. And so one writer has pointed out, a magnifying glass, if you've ever used one, if you haven't, find one. Magnifying glass it doesn't, doesn't increase, he says, it doesn't increase the number of dirty spots. You know, put a magnifying glass. It doesn't increase the number, but it does make them stand out more clearly. And it brings to light some that the naked eye cannot see. It's the law. It's revealing to us. To, to put it in simple terms, it's showing us just how bad our sin is against this backdrop of a holy God. How far off the mark are we? We're not just a tiny step away from God's holiness. We're infinitely apart from Him in our sin. Augustine has said this. Listen to this quote. The law was given in order to convert a great, I think what he means is man, in order to convert a great man into a little man. <laughs> How he's speaking of the law. The law was given to convert a great man. You who think you're great, it converts you into a little man. To show that you have no power of your own for righteousness. It doesn't end there, though. And he says this, and might thus poor, needy, and destitute, flee to grace. 
when the mirror comes in the law and we look at it and we read it and we read the, the psalms of righteousness and we, the clean hearts and we say, Lord, I am not there. I wish I was and I'm not there. And we read these commands. We understand fully our problem with God. To understand that poorness leads us to flee somewhere. Either flee to some carnal, earthly satisfaction to maybe dull the guilt of that, or we flee to grace, as Augustine says. And that's what Paul does in verse 20. He flees to increase grace. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Abounding grace. It's the message of the chapter. In light of the increase of sin, so grace abounds. One writer, I think it was Leon Morris, called it superabounds. So the more sin, thus the more grace. Now that whole statement right there can be abused, and Paul knows that, and he's gonna, that's, we're going to get in that chapter 6. So, so sin all the more, because grace all the more? No, no, you've got it wrong. He's saying for those, are you aware of that sin, convicted of the sin, for the increase of sin, there is more and more and more and more grace in God and resulting in what? We worship God this God of grace, this good news, the really good news. And so Paul concludes in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, one final final comparison. Probably not over with comparisons here in the book of Romans. But there are two, if you see the word reign there, I think there's two kingdoms at issue here in verse 21. There's the kingdom, the reign of R-E-I-G-N, the reign of sin and death, this reigning, this kingdom. And then there's the kingdom, the reign of grace leading to life. Through the one man, sin comes into the world, and through sin comes death. So Two, the curse is reversed in Jesus Christ, taking the curse upon Himself, this greater Adam, the one man through whom grace comes and in whom is life itself. And so Paul's climax, abounding and reigning grace to righteousness, to eternal life, and they all come through Jesus Christ. Our need is great, And in our great need, in our great sin, we need a Savior. We need Jesus. Chapter 5 began with us being justified. If you're on that page of chapter 5, verse 1, being declared righteous, that is, being justified by faith, what do we have? We have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you have peace? Through Christ. Come to the end, the last verse, verse 21, ends with what? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the object. He's the through of this passage. And in particular, verses 12, now through 21, that sin came through Adam, so grace and life come through Jesus Christ, those who are in Christ. So I close asking again today, are you in Adam or Christ? Are you in Adam? Are you in Adam? Are you disregarding the Lord? Maybe you are closing your ears to Him. 
yeah, I know there's the word. I'll get to it someday. I'd rather go my own way. I'd rather do my own thing for a while. I will get to it when I'm older or when I feel more like it. To those that are in Adam, if that's you, eternal punishment awaits you. And even that, for God to tell us that is His grace to you to say as a warning. Take it as a gracious warning. To remain in Adam is to remain on the path to eternal destruction, away from the joy of the Lord forever. Torment. But if you be in Christ, are you in Christ? Have you come to Christ by faith? Simply saying, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner in need of salvation. Save me. I want to follow you. Look to Jesus. Be in Christ. Those who live eternally in the presence of God are those who are righteous. In the presence of a holy God, righteousness must be there. But those who are righteous are those who are righteous in the righteous one. All praise and glory be to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the way. You are the truth, and you are the life. You are abounding grace in flesh that came to save sinners like us. May we cherish you. May we worship you. And may we, on our darkest day of sin, claim not our own pulling ourselves up, but the pure grace of Christ and to flee to grace again. Lord, when your mirror comes in our lives, maybe it's from a fellow believer or our spouse or even our kids, or we're just reading your word and the mirror comes in and says, you are a poor and wretched sinner. Lord, may we thank you for the grace, for the grace of that. And Lord, may we flee to the cross of Christ once again where grace abounds. May it abound in us. And then, Lord, as we experience this grace, may we show it. Show it to enemies that have wronged us. That we would live in light of who you are and in light of your grace. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.